What is your most embarrassing moment? Do you have one? I can tell that you do. <laughs> so is there that moment that you're like, now that I mention it, um, it just makes you cringe just remembering this moment? Do you have a most embarrassing moment? Maybe you'd be willing to share. Maybe you would very much not be willing to share. So I was just trying to think of some embarrassing stuff. Like, what if you walked into a room full of people and you made a mean joke about someone and it was just dead silent? And then it was because you realized the person you were joking about was in the room. That's embarrassing. Kind of mean. Um, maybe it's happened, what, what if you posted something online that you didn't mean to post? And then you went to class or you went to work and then an hour later you get to your phone and it has a hundred notifications on it. Like, did you mean to post this? You didn't. That's embarrassing. What if you got caught by a parent or a teacher or a police officer or some authority figure doing something that you're not supposed to be doing? And now you have that combination of, I guess, guilt because you did something wrong and shame because other people are finding out and then also fear. Like, what exactly are the consequences going to be? So maybe it was big, something you're thinking of. Maybe it was small, but whatever it was, having a most embarrassing moment does not make for a great day. But however bad you felt at your most embarrassing moment, it was nothing compared to the woman that we heard about in our gospel reading today. Because not only had she been caught doing something wrong, and not only was she embarrassed and humiliated that people were finding out about it, but the thing that she had done wrong at this time in history was a thing that was punishable by death. This woman had been caught in the act of adultery. Now, we're just going to leave it for a different time to discuss the law of Moses on this topic and other topics, and maybe to discuss how some of these punishments and consequences that seem so harsh to us today, in the brutal ancient Near Eastern world, some of these things were actually quite moderate and fair. In fact, the law of Moses was revolutionary in the way that it provided rights to women and slaves and foreigners. But we'll leave that for a different time. Uh, we'll also leave it for a different time to discuss and to ask, how often at Jesus' time did people actually get executed for adultery? Because this is 1,500 years after Moses. The Romans were now in charge. And so the Jewish people couldn't go around just stoning people in the streets whenever they wanted to. And so I wonder how often this sentence was carried out to like its full technical authority. But we'll leave that for another time too. Because these different details about laws and punishments don't really matter for understanding this story. We understand the situation. This woman was caught in the act of doing something that she knew was wrong. And it became public. It became known. And so I think we could all relate to her feelings, even if we've experienced these in a smaller way, feelings of guilt and, and shame and certainly fear of what punishment might be coming. So this woman was not having a great day. Can we agree on that? Um, but things were about to get worse because now she was about to be used as a pawn by a group of men, religious leaders, who really didn't care about her in the slightest. 
As Jesus was teaching in the temple, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees suddenly barged in, dragging this woman with them. They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Now if you're envisioning this scene, and you're thinking, this seems kind of cruel, and abusive and misogynistic towards women, you're absolutely correct. Because here's the question I have, where's the guy? Last time I checked, it takes two people to commit adultery. This woman has been caught in the act, supposedly. Where's the guy? Why is he not being put up in front and paraded in front of everybody and humiliated and shamed and threatened with death? Where's the guy? The absence of the guy demonstrates clearly that, you know, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees are really not concerned about justice in any way. They're really not concerned about this woman's spiritual well-being. They're really not concerned about anybody's spiritual well-being. Um, they're simply concerned with setting a trap for Jesus, which is something that they've been trying unsuccessfully to do all week long. So the previous chapter, this comes from John chapter 8, but the previous chapter, John 7, kind of sets the scene for us. So this is kind of strikingly similar to the week that Jesus died, where there's this huge festival and all these people are gathered at the Passover. In this case, it's an earlier festival, but it's one of these massive groups of people in Jerusalem. Thousands of Jewish people have come from all around the world. There's a festival going on. And word starts to spread amidst the crowd. Jesus of Nazareth is here. Jesus of Nazareth is here. And this is a big deal because in your mental map, I'm sure you're picturing, yep, Jesus is from way up north in Nazareth, in Galilee, kind of the middle of nowhere, and then down south is the capital where all the important leaders are, the ones who are jealous of Jesus all the time for his popularity. And up to this point in time, Jesus hadn't come down to Jerusalem and made a huge appearance very often, but now he does at this festival. He's taking advantage of the crowds of thousands of people, and he's preaching to these big groups right by the temple, explaining why he is the Messiah. He is the promised Savior their nation has been waiting for for thousands of years. And his enemies, the religious leaders, are furious. They're so angry at Jesus, but they can't figure out how to stop him from just talking publicly. So finally, they get some armed temple guards, and they send them to go arrest Jesus. And to me... This is kind of a hilarious story from John chapter 7. You picture these big, strong temple guards, and the Pharisees are like, go get Jesus. So the guards go to get him. And then we hear some of the things Jesus is teaching, and we don't hear anything about these guards. And then the next thing we hear, the guards came back to the Pharisees and leaders without Jesus. And the leaders are like, what are you doing? He's preaching right there. Can you not arrest a guy? Like, how thick is your skull? And then you picture the guards kind of saying sheepishly these words, Nobody ever spoke the way that this man does. Maybe he is who he says he is. And now the religious leaders are about to lose it. Like, has he tricked you too? Have you been deceived too? And here's their quote. Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, a curse on them. How dare these common people make up their own religious minds about something without waiting for us, the religious experts, to tell them what to believe. So this is what's been going on this week. 
Jesus' enemies are incredibly frustrated. Even their temple guards are getting converted to this Jesus of Nazareth. But now this woman is brought in who's been caught committing adultery, and for somebody in the leadership, a light bulb goes on, and they realize maybe this is the opportunity that they've been looking for. They could use this woman to set a trap. They will pull her in front of Jesus and in front of everybody, and as she's crying and begging for mercy and looking so pitiful, now they'll ask Jesus if she really should be stoned to death as the law of Moses requires. If he says yes, Jesus looks very cruel and heartless, and probably the people won't want to listen to him anymore. Or even if they do, if he says yes, the Pharisees can basically stir up a lynch mob and have this woman killed in the street, and then, when the Roman authorities come and say, what was this unauthorized execution? Who caused this murder? They can say, well, it was this guy from Nazareth. He came and told the crowd to stone her. Maybe they can get Jesus arrested. But if Jesus says no, let her go free, now they can accuse him of breaking the law of Moses. How can he be the Messiah if he doesn't keep the law of Moses? It's a perfect trap, they think. But Jesus' response totally blindsides them. They bring this woman here. They ask Jesus this question in the middle, in front of everybody. Should we stone her to death or not? And Jesus' first reaction is nothing. He just is on the ground doodling in the dust with his finger absentmindedly. And it looks like maybe he's stalling. It looks like maybe he's afraid and doesn't know what to say. Maybe the trap is working. So his enemies press their perceived advantage. They say, come on, Jesus, I thought you were the teacher of the law. Jesus, tell us what to do. We're all waiting. Should we kill this woman or not? And they're just filled with glee. They've got him, they think. And finally, Jesus stands up. It's silent. Everyone's looking at him. And then he drops this line. Whichever one of you is without sin, let him throw the first stone. And he gets back down and starts doodling in the dust again. Long, awkward silence. I picture the only sounds you can hear are the occasional sniffle and sob from this poor woman who's still wondering whether or not she's about to be stoned to death. It's just silent. And no one's really looking at this woman anymore because now every eye is on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And their eyes are on the ground. Because this is a very arrogant, proud group of men. But is anybody proud enough to stand up in front of the entire crowd and claim to be without sin? Apparently not. Because John, who witnessed this and records it, tells us those who had heard began to trickle away one at a time, the older ones first, until finally only Jesus is left with the woman still standing there. Jesus finally straightened up, dusted off his hands, and said, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she says. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So it, it's a beautiful story. This is such a beloved story from Jesus' life. It brings me to tears every time that I tell it. But you find yourself asking, what is it that is specifically so beautiful about it? What is it about this story that, that just grabs you? And I think it's this. While everybody is focused on the politics and the drama 
and the confrontation that's been going on between Jesus and the leaders all week long. Everyone's focused on all these things. What's going to happen? What is Jesus focused on? He is only focused, wrong picture, he is only focused on the woman. She's having the worst day she has ever had in her life. She's being used as a pawn by all these leaders who don't really care about her. But she's not complaining because she knows what she has done. She knows what the penalty is. She knows that she deserves to die. So, like, there's this whole situation. There's thousands of people. All these things are happening. And it's as though Jesus just presses pause and zooms in on just this woman, the one person in this crowd who is absolutely crushed by guilt. And this woman is who he's focused on. Because this is why Jesus is here. This is why the Savior came to this earth. As the prophet Isaiah says, the Savior came to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from darkness the prisoners. Jesus came to stand by sinful people when everybody else is deserting us. Jesus came to extend his grace to sinful people when everybody else is condemning us. Jesus came to tell us that we get to have life. Even if everybody else in the world and even if our own guilty conscience is telling us that we deserve death. This is why Jesus is here. There's thousands of people in the scene. This is why Jesus is here. So last week, uh, last week in our sermon, we talked about sinful separation. We talked about our tendency to distance ourselves from anybody who's suffering or somebody who's publicly been caught in sin. And we tend to find reasons to say, that would never happen to me, or I would never do that, and, and separate ourselves. Jesus has no such tendency. He is not afraid to be associated with sin and suffering. I mean, really, this is Jesus' entire ministry. You think of the people who Jesus hung out with, and this is something that offended his enemies, is that he hung out with the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, the foreigners, the people on the fringes of society. In this case, it happens to be a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. But Jesus is not afraid to be associated with a person like this. Jesus is not afraid to stand next to a person like this. But it goes further. Jesus is not afraid to die for a person like this. In two Sundays, it's going to be Holy Week. And so for Holy Week, we celebrate and we remember the things that Jesus did in those last days leading up to his death. But think for a minute about all the things that happened to Jesus just during the last 24 hours before he died. He was deserted by all of his followers. He was arrested and beaten up and mocked by those Jewish leaders who hated him. Now they finally got him. In the morning, he was dragged before the Roman governor. There he was flogged. And then they put on this terrible show with Jesus where like, they put a pretend robe on him. And they put a pretend scepter in his hand. And some wise guy made a pretend crown out of thorns and jammed it painfully into his head. And then they all came around Jesus and said, Hail the king. Look how powerful he is. Wow, king, give us some commands. Don't have any. That's what I thought. And they dragged Jesus off to the cross, and there he's nailed to the cross and crucified with this sign above his head that says, Here's the king of the Jews. What a joke. And this is what people said. What a joke. 
Jesus' enemies, these leaders, they gleefully gathered around the cross, and then when people came walking by, they said, look at this guy, what a joke. This is the one who claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be a king. And then Jesus' opponents said, if you're really the Christ, come down from the cross and we'll believe in you right now. See? What a joke. And people spit on the ground and walked away, leaving Jesus forsaken and alone. But this is why Jesus is here, to take upon himself the shame, to take upon himself the public embarrassment, to take upon himself all of this suffering for the sins of the whole world. And finally, to suffer not just people's condemnation, but God's condemnation, to the degree that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Paying for all of it, enduring all of it. This is why Jesus is here. And it's going to happen soon. But for now, Jesus at the temple is simply standing by this woman. And he's not afraid to stand by her when no one else will. He's not afraid to be associated with her when no one else will. And when the last of those leaders have melted away, Jesus says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, no, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. So what really makes this story so powerful is the moment when we realize that this woman, this woman is us. Jesus is not afraid to stand by us. And Jesus is not afraid to stand by you. No matter what you've done, no matter what public embarrassing thing people know about you that you're so embarrassed by their condemnation, or no matter what sinful thoughts are buried in your heart, no matter what sinful things are in your past, only between you and God, whatever guilt Satan tries to crush you with, Jesus is not afraid of any of that. He's not afraid to stand right by you and call you his own and call you his child. In fact, he was not afraid to take the penalty for any of your sins, for all of your sins, and pay it in full on the cross. Jesus is not ashamed to be associated with you and take all your condemnation upon himself until there is none left for you. And that's what Romans 8 said in that first beautiful verse. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus no matter what you've done. And the reason there's no condemnation is not because God is lenient and soft and doesn't care how people live. There's no condemnation because Jesus already took the condemnation on himself in our place. We look at this woman and Jesus standing up for her and we recognize this is our story too. So, Summing things up, what, what do we take from this? this? This beautiful, unexpected picture of Jesus standing in for this woman. I think there's three things we can learn and three ways that condemnation is crushed by God's grace. And they're short, because we're on the last page and the kids are done, so don't worry. Um, three things to take home from you. Zone back in. We've got two more minutes. First one is God's grace crushes our pride. So the times of life when we're tempted like the Pharisees to look at somebody else's sin and somebody else's public fall and what somebody else has done, and we want to use that to elevate ourselves above them and, and distance ourselves and say, see, I would never do that. God's grace comes in and crushes our pride. When we realize the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for everything we have done, God sent his own son to endure all of that for us. 
if that's our backstory, who in the world are we to place ourselves in judgment above anybody? Right? It's like whichever one of you is without sin, let him cast the first stone. No volunteers? Okay, that's what I thought. Our pride is crushed. But our guilt is also crushed. Because when we feel not like the Pharisees, but when we feel like this woman, consumed by guilt over what we have done, weighed down by condemnation, whether it's from other people, whether it's from God, whether it's even from our own guilty conscience, we are assured that we are forgiven. And we're assured in so many beautiful Bible passages, like here would be just one of my favorites. 1 John 3 verse 20 says, even if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Even when your heart condemns you for your sin, the only opinion that matters about your sin is the Lord and judge of the entire universe. And he says, your sins are forgiven because you are his child and there is no condemnation left. For you. Jesus removes your guilt. And it's true because he says so, whether you feel like it or not. Finally, God's grace motivates us to live for him. So, lest we misinterpret Jesus' words here, and lest we think Jesus doesn't care about morality, and lest we think the reason Jesus came to earth is to just give us a free license to do whatever we want, let's take a look at Jesus' last final words to this woman. Everybody's gone. The leaders have left. It's just Jesus and the woman standing here. And he says to her, has no one condemned you? Then neither do I condemn you. Now, go and leave your life of sin. He doesn't say, you're forgiven. Now, you can go commit adultery with whoever you want because those Old Testament sexual ethics are outdated and we're in a modern advanced age. He doesn't say, go now and leave organized religion for good, because we've clearly seen that some of its main leaders are complete judgmental hypocrites. No, he says, go now and leave your life of sin. You're free. Free from condemnation. Free from God's punishment. You are a child of God. You are going to heaven because God says so, no matter what you feel. And therefore, you're free to live a life that glorifies God. And it reflects this amazing, beautiful love to more people. Amen. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard and keep your hearts and your minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your Savior. Amen.